Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, and this is where we are solving the problems of today with the wisdom of the past. And today we're going to be doing something a little different than we normally than I normally do here. Well, what I wanted to do is take a little bit of time to get some mailbag questions and offer some of my thoughts on some things that might be on people's minds. So I put out a couple tweets over the last uh, couple weeks, and I got a couple really good questions here and. Um, two of them from accounts that I talk to a lot on Twitter and then one from someone who's anonymous but I think it's a really great question as well and something that's well worth discussing and then I also wanted to talk a little bit about something that I found funny I just posted out uh, something on Twitter tweeted out something I guess I should say and it seemed to kind of catch fire and again kind of going viral and I think that a lot of people were missing the point of what I was trying to say. So I wanted to kind of clear that up as well and talk a little bit about that before I dive into some of the mailbag questions because I think it's relevant to what I'm trying to do here at the Conversation for Our Generation is focus on creating that good dialogue, getting at the truth, and doing so by, like I said, solving problems of today with the wisdom of the past. And so tapping into the wisdom and that lies in the philosophy, religion, history, all this that we've been handed down, understanding that, putting it in context, and then seeing what translates to the problems that we're facing today and using that to solve today's problems. And I think that that is something that is a very long-form discussion. And so sometimes the memes have a lot of extra context that I think doesn't always get said, but when I explain it... With that context, I think it comes off a little differently. So a meme that I posted, and I'll put it in the show notes so you can check it out, went a little viral, and I wanted to say that some of the people, I think, took it differently than what I meant it to be. But I think also there's a nerve that it's striking, and I wanted to kind of look at why I think it's striking that nerve. And so that's what I wanted to talk about today is those couple of things. But before I do all dive into that, I just want to remind you, too, that you can check out the Conversation for Our Generation on conversationforgeneration.com to find more of my book reviews. Buying my those books through those reviews and the links there really helps me out and supports the Conversation for Our Generation. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. If you're on the website right now, open up your podcast player and subscribe. Leave a good rating and review. That really helps me out. If you're on, if you're if you check out uh, YouTube, if you're on YouTube a lot. Definitely subscribe there as well. Rolling out videos, uh, trying to get a couple of those clips out each week. We have interviews going up there, book reviews every Friday. So definitely check that out as well. And on Twitter, like I said, I kind of went viral there. So you're not to, not trying to brag, but it was pretty cool. It was pretty awesome. But it's just at con of our gen there and facebook.com slash conversation for generation as well if you want to follow there. And so... I wanted to now hop over to the quote of the week, which is one from Grace Kelly. And this kind of starts where I wanted to talk about what I think is important here. And she says, women's natural role is to be a pillar of the family. And I want to discuss this idea a little bit more in one of the questions, but I wanted to address it here a little bit as well and lay some groundwork for this idea. And it's not that I don't think this necessarily means that 
you need to have the stereotypical 50s housewife. Because first of all, that stereotype of the 50s housewife really only lasted for the 50s. <laughs> and it was a very novel thing for that time. I mean, the housewife of the t- really wives being at home and everything before then was much, much different. That sort of oh, I have extra time to bake goods and do all this stuff for my husband and yada yada. Like, that was kind of a new thing that came about because of all of the automation and inventions. And that's not to say that wives before kind of, I guess you could say like the middle 20th century, maybe even a little bit into the early 20th century as well, didn't have time but or didn't do that thing type of thing. But they didn't have time to like give you that what you picture on like leave it to beaver. And really, in the 1800s and before, really especially before, throughout all of history, women had to do so much to just maintain the home and to maintain the family. And they held everything together. They were often, obviously, cooking and all of that stuff, but making sure that all the kids were doing all the chores that they needed because it was a full-time job for just about everyone who was capable in the family to pitch in and be able to cook a meal. I mean, you didn't, before running water, you had to go get water and you had to collect firewood to cook on a wood stove and all of those sorts of things. That's just so work intensive to do so many things that we can do at the push of a button now. And so there really is this central place in the home for a woman for so long that just while the man might have to go out and even before you had job spells specialization before you had your blacksmiths and all of those things cropping up but when you were just hunter gatherers the women stayed back watched the children tended to the home and the men went out and hunted even like in that kind of nomadic lifestyle all the way back to that point and that didn't really go away until very, very recently that that was basically the dynamic that was assumed because that was the dynamic that was necessary for survival. That was the dynamic that was, those were the roles that men and women had to play because of our biology and how our biology plays out in the world that we live in. And so as our economy, as our world sort of shifted during the industrial revolution, women's role at the center of the family became either less obvious because it was being sort of automated away by other things, or I think also was railed against as not enough, not a fulfilling thing for women by people who had alternative ends and minds. I think that socialists and communists obviously wanted women in the workforce because they saw everyone as an economic individual, even more so than any like libertarian economist who everyone acts like is sort of that kind of cold, sees everyone as an economic entity. I think socialists do that even more, actually. I think that any economist will say, yes, (laughs) when you are at home loving your children, that's not an economic thing. You, there may be economic repercussions of choices that you make, sure, but that is not something that is being primarily made for a choice being made by economic 
with with economy in mind, right? Let's say, and I think that that role as the pillar of the family in the last hundred years has really been undermined. And I'm reading an interesting book that I'll have to finish before I talk more about it because I'm curious to see a little bit of where it goes. Right now, it's in the discussion of the problems, and I think I've talked a lot about those, so I don't need to harp on that. But I'm curious to see what solutions it offers because this person is a really sharp thinker. And what I'm trying to piece together is I think that women have been pushed out of that central role in the family, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that they have been made sort of a second-class version of men by feminism, that their worth comes from what they can earn for the family, being a breadwinner, all of those things. And that's really not the most important thing that people can do. I think that it's not the most important thing men do. I think the most important thing you do is teaching your children, right? I think that, for me, the most important thing my dad did for me was, yes, it's great that he gave us food and shelter and was able to, you know, do all that, put us to give us good vacations when we were kids and stuff like that. Like, that's all great. But the biggest thing that he did is educate us and raise us in a way that we were able to be self-sufficient. And I think that that is the most crucial part. That's what you see missing in so many different areas of our society today from men, but I think that we're pulling women out of that as well, and that's not good. I think a huge part of the family being disrupted is women's roles as a mother and as a pillar of the family, whatever that looks like. That might change over time. It did, you know, even the people today who, like, sort of lionized the 50s housewife, that was not the role that women played 100 years before, or 200, or or 1,000 years before. That's really not the role, that's a very, it was a very different embodiment, I should say, of the role of being the pillar of the family. So it was the same role, but it was very differently expressed. And I think that is what we have to recognize, is that we can't go back to the same expression of that role, but we do have to have women in that central role, I think. And that's not to say that they can't maybe have a part-time job or have some other things. I think that I'm open to the idea that that might be the case. I don't know. I I can't say that I have that answer. And I definitely don't have that answer as what everyone should be doing in every situation. I don't think you can make that claim at all. But I do think you can claim that women should be the center of the family. The mother should be that. And that might look differently in different situations for different socioeconomic situations different geographies, different family types, you know, that might be a little different. I get that. But they have to be at the center, I think. And so that kind of takes me into the post that I had, which was one where it was the New Yorker came out with the cover of the young lady, probably looking like mid-20s to late, you know, mid-20s to early 30s, something like that in what looks like a one-bedroom apartment that is messy, overflowing with wine bottles, got several cats, bunch of trash all over the floor, Amazon boxes, and 
everything's just messy and gross and kind of covered up with like a little partition so you can't see her messy room. And she's sipping a nice, you know, drink out of like a martini glass with a nice blouse on, nice earrings and all done up, but like everything else is in shambles. And I think that that, while I know it's a point about COVID today, (laughs) I get that, but I don't think that in the Spanish flu pandemic, this would have been something that people would have rejoiced or not even rejoiced, uh, would have held up as like anything to laugh at or to say, oh, I totally get that. That's very, uh, what's relatable, right? That's what I kind of see some people saying in the thread that came from this tweet, but they're saying, oh, it's relatable. I get that. And I think that it really just demeans women and their role and what role they're able to play in society to say that like being alone and putting on a face is relatable. I think that that's bad. (laughs) I think that's a bad sign. And then the one on the left is a New Yorker, another picture from an old one that someone, I have to give credit. I can't actually remember who it is who posted this, but there was someone who replied when I said something about the other one saying that it was kind of sad, just in general, that's all I said was that it was a really sad cover, replied with this and said, man, things have changed. And it's a nice white house with Christmas lights and a family, you know, father, mother, two kids looking at the Christmas lights that look like they just put been put up. And it's from 1957, December 14th. And that's, to me, what you see is sort of a different ideal. Because here's the thing is, is that's what people were striving for is mom, dad, couple kids, you know, two to maybe 10, depending on if you're Protestant or Catholic, (laughs) two to 10 kids in the house. (laughs) But, you know, that sort of white picket fence, you know, your neighbors, you know, it's like living in the twilight zone episodes before they go crazy, right? That's what, that's what people wanted. (laughs) And, and that was the, that's what people held up as what was right. But now, or not what was right, but what was desirable. And now this New Yorker cover today of the girl putting on face and sort of lying about what's going on is what's actually held up as desirable. It is. Regardless, it is that, oh, like, sort of like, I don't know how to describe it. The jokes about women and they drink a lot of wine, they are eternally single and they don't know why and blah, blah, blah. All of that is sort of a lifestyle that is held up in our society in a way, regardless of whether or not many people actually follow it. It is sort of what you see in all sorts of TV shows and this kind of not put together late 20s, early 30s woman who drinks a lot of wine. And and I know people who are fine with that life and that's okay. I'm, I'm not trying to sit here and dictate to everybody how to live their life. Okay. I get that. That is one choice that people can make. I, I don't think it's necessarily generally the best choice, but I, I get that there are people who can't find a husband who want one. And there's, that's all. I'm not trying to get into all of that, but this sort of other aspect that this cover has where it's putting on that fake front. We do actually hold that up. We, mock it sometimes, but that 
idea that you put your best parts of yourself on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter, and you don't let any vulnerabilities out, and you don't show that you're disheveled and not put together in the best ways, I think that we do have that sort of double life that we live, and we hold that up as an ideal without even recognizing it. And I think that even though The New Yorker is probably a dwindling publication compared to what it might have been in the 50s, I don't know that for sure, but I'm just guessing based on the way media has shifted since then. But what's on the cover of these big magazines is still generally a sign of our culture in a big way. And so that's really what I was trying to get at is we're holding up this and we're holding up this woman as something that's kind of being idolized in a way. And I don't think that's good. I don't think that that should be our role model that we hold up. We should have, well, I mean, why don't we have the woman who is getting off work and cooking extra meals to take to family and friends who are, who has, who have a loved one that's in the hospital with COVID. And you know, I, I know people like that. Where are those people being held up as role models? Those women are out there. So there are people who are actually <laughs> not kind of isolated on their own with their cats, living this fake life, apparently, that I think would be good to be held up. I mean, there are, I have nurses and, you know, uh, doctors in my family who've been kind of on the front lines of these things. As much as I think that some of the parts of our response have been overblown, there have been real problems in hospitals with that, and they've had to make some a lot of sacrifices. Where are those people? Where are the, where is a nurse who's a mom and, you know, all that stuff? We heard about a lot of those stories. Where is that lady in this? You know, it just doesn't, seem like something we should hold as desirable as something to be put on a magazine cover to be recreated in other people's lives. That's what I was just trying to point out is that it's not <laughs> super loaded. It's just that that's a very sad lifestyle. And I think that it's, if we were living better before the pandemic, this wouldn't be the case, right? My wife and I don't have this sort of I mean, our house has gotten a little messy here and there, but we've been trying to keep it clean, trying to do some chores and get some stuff fixed up like, and still spend time together. We've done that. But this isolation that we had before the pandemic has just been exacerbated. And I think it's really a sign that our culture was unhealthy beforehand, that this is the result of a pandemic like this and being shut in our homes and locked down and all of that, we could still, like I have episodes earlier on where I talk about it. It's time to do what you always wanted to do. Why does she not clean up her house and, or her apartment and work on fixing some things up and learning, right? Or reading a book or taking a course to improve your, your skill set. Why is it just a mess? And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just think that that's really the problem that I have with it. But then there were people who <laughs> had a lot of other things like talking about the fifties versus today, like 
saying that I just wanted us to go back to the 50s and to racism and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, that's not the case. There was a lot of other conversation. I think, I don't know, she kind of looks like she's in this New Yorker cover, maybe black or mixed or something. People pointed out that, like, the family in the picture is white or that the house would be unaffordable now and just all these little things. I'm like, people, it's kind of a meme. (laughs) Or not kind of, it was a meme. And so diving into all those little things, I think just show that people didn't understand kind of the joke, not joke, but just the, I don't know, the broad strokes of it. (laughs) I wasn't making a very fine-tuned argument about things. I was just kind of pointing out the problems there. But yeah, I don't know. I just think it was interesting that it struck a chord and I wanted to talk a little bit about it because I think it pointed to something in our culture that was already sick and is potentially getting sicker at the moment. So hopefully we can fix that. So let's go ahead and dive into the mailbag. And so this first one here is from the ladies at Freed From Feminism. And I spoke with them a while back, (laughs) a few months ago. And so they had a good question that I thought was interesting and hopefully won't get me into any trouble (laughs) with the woke mob. But it says, or their question was, and the reason I say there is I don't actually know if it was Teresa or Beth who asked it because it came from their, the Freed From Feminism account. So I don't actually know who was doing it at the time. Otherwise, I would give credit to whichever lady it was. Uh, singly, but definitely follow them. They are just at Freed Feminism on Twitter, so definitely check them out as well. But here's the question. In a more Christian society, would you support the repeal of the 19th Amendment? And my answer is sort of it depends. If we are saying in a more Christian society, as in in a sort of Christendom, right? kind of if we were in a society that was actually sort of a Christian or Catholic theocracy, I would say that we probably wouldn't need the 19th Amendment. We probably wouldn't have that sort of representation. You may have something that's more like a monarchy, a monarch, a a monarchy. Wow. Some sort of monarchical system. And you probably wouldn't have the voting and everything that we have today. Um, as far as the question of repealing it, I don't think that we could necessarily make an argument against the 19th Amendment with the way that it is today. And I don't think from a prudential matter that it would be a winning issue, even if you thought it has, it might be the right thing to do. I don't think it's something that would pan out well. And I also don't think it's something that is necessarily contrary to the Christian lifestyle. I think that the way we have gone about the last hundred years is contrary in a lot of ways to Christian values and Christian ethics, but I don't think that it's the 19th Amendment's fault. And so if they're asking about specifically the 19th Amendment and in our current system, the way it is right? But maybe we're a little bit better, a little bit more Christian, maybe like the 50s or even before, but, you know, probably even earlier, like even like the 
early 1900s, right? When there was sort of that really radical temperance movement, very big, strong Christian ideas in the country. If we lived in something like that, like where we not like over half of our country is unaffiliated, where let's say 75% of people, 80% of people are relatively Christian and pretty much go to mass or church on Sundays and are somewhat practicing. I still would say keep the 19th Amendment. And the reason is, and I know that I probably disagree with the, these with Teresa and Beth, or at least a little bit on this stuff, is the reason why is I think that since we live under a democratic republic, I think that all capable adults should be able to participate in our political process. And I don't think we should limit who can participate by, you know, them being a woman or anything like that. And it's not because I think women are the same as men. I think that actually it is good to have their perspective on how we should be governed. And I think that if we want to fully understand everyone that is being governed in our society, I think that women are just as capable of, not just as capable, that's a bad phrasing. Women, because of their inherent dignity as human beings, have the right to being to be a citizen. And that requires that they educate themselves on the civic process. That requires that they participate in our civic life in some way, in a role that is relative to who they are, right? We like, for instance, you don't have to be a worker or a cog in a machine to be a contributing member of society, a, a, to be a civilian, a, a citizen rather, right? You have people in the military who play a role. You have doctors who play a role. You have priests who I would say do not actually participate in the economic world. They're sort of dead to the world is the idea um, monks and nuns, I think, also have a role to play. So people who really do exist outside of the economic order of things. So for them, I think that it's, I guess I might be reading into it too much, is the idea that putting people into the political system kind of put people into the economic system and took them out of the home. And I think that there is a contingent, not contingent, a point of view that comes from being a housewife, if that's what they're getting at, that could be expressed in a political form. And I think that that's good that they have that, that women would have that ability to put that forth and to stand up against the possibility of a tyranny in some way, because I do think that coverture laws were unjust. I do think that, uh, like marital rape and domestic abuse and some of those things were hard to get legislated at times because women didn't have a say in the political process. And I think that that might, there might be some credence to that potentially. That said, just like with, you know, white people voting to give black people the, you know, give black people a vote, men voted to give women a vote. So there is that sense that there was still a lot of men who wanted women to 
be seen as equal under the law. The other thing is, I would rather limit voting, not by sex or anything like that, I would, or by even household, like only one vote per household or something like that. Because what I want is all these big conservative families <laughs> to grow up and create a bunch of big conservative families that push back against the, you know, liberal families that are maybe having one or two kids, maybe not even at really like at replacement rate, these conservative families can, you can win the population game there. So I don't want to limit it that way pragmatically, but also if I were to limit the vote, it would be based on education and seeing people who have the, who like can pass a very simple 10 question quiz of like, what are the three branches of government? Just name 10 presidents. Like how many states are in the union? Can you name five of them too? And like, really just, I don't need people to have seer, like have read the Federalist Papers to be able to vote. I don't think that's the case. I do think that you should have basic understandings of the relationship between the federal government and the state governments of, you know, who your representatives are, what certain, just some basic things like that. That's what you need to do. Can you pass a citizenship test? Like the test that people have to take to become a citizen, voters should have to be able to pass that. That's, that's kind of my thought because that citizenship test is saying, are you ready to be a citizen of the United States? To vote means that you are a responsible citizen of the United States. So I think it makes sense to have voters take that test as well. That's how I look at it. That's where I would like to limit voting is get all the people who know nothing about our system out of it and and out of the voting rules and only people who understand the system can vote. That's what I would like. That's where I think we should focus our energies um, instead. The next question is anonymous and it's, uh, the question is, in a perfect world, what would each party do to not divide ourselves to a level of easy control? And I think that there are a number of things we can do to push back against the divisiveness. And I assume that what this question is asking is, or kind of loading in there is, when we are divided, we are easy to be kind of controlled by the two-party system in a way. And I think that that's true. If you look at the fact that we've basically had these two parties for 150 years, and I think the times where it, where they're the least threatened is when we are most divided, right? The times where the parties maybe have the most crossover, have the most security in their position of power is when, times when we're unified, like World War II or World War I. You could see sort of us rally behind really some, I'd say, Wilson and Roosevelt who did a lot of really bad things in those times, you know, the depression as well. And so I think that I've talked a little bit more about this in an episode earlier. It's episode, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's episode, um, sorry, I'll pull it up here as well and double check, but it's, about what we need to do to come together. It's it's a full discussion on that, so I definitely think you should check out episode 67 uh, to see more about what I have to say on that. But I think, to answer the question here, basically, I think we need to have common assumptions about the world. We have to understand 
certain things about the world and have the same base assumptions that there is an objective truth and an objective reality outside of ourselves in that while our emotions and our senses may sort of be ways to point us to truth sometimes we also have to be cautious about them and we can't follow them completely right our intuition can be right and it can be good but you have to shape your intuition and your conscience to conform to the reality outside of yourself if we can have that and some other base assumptions about what our country is here to do say okay let's look at our founding documents let's look at where we come from and say okay here's what we were set out as a country to do if we want to change those things, we have to do it by the mechanisms that are there provided for us constitutionally. And if you don't accept those things, you really have to give a good reason why not, because that's what we're based on. And if you can have that sort of sharing of the framework, then I think we can do well. If we can't have that, a second best thing would be to be able to have discussions that get to that level of base assumptions to say, okay, we are talking about a political issue like abortion way up here. And if we want to understand each other's point of view, I need to know why you believe on the pro-choice side versus the pro-life side. Like, it can't just be, I think, I mean, I think that you could summarize it short. To start, I think killing babies is bad and abortion is killing babies. Therefore, I'm pro-life. And you could say, I think that not being able to get an abortion is against women's autonomy. That's bad. And so you should be able to get an abortion. Okay, we can start there. But now we have to go under and be able to get to some of those base assumptions and some of that framework about is life above bodily autonomy and start to hash out some of those values. And if we can't be honest about those things as you dive deeper into a lot of those other value assumptions, a lot of those other, really the whole, our whole worldview that's kind of loaded into these really hot button issues. There's a lot that's packed into them that when you start to unpack it, you don't realize how deep into your value system some of these really high level issues go. And I think that we have to be able to dive in there and have a way to talk about that with people we disagree with. And if we can't have that, it's impossible to have, I think, a society like ours that is based on free speech, hashing out what's best for our society with our speech and getting to the truth of it. And so if we can't share a framework, we need to be able to at least understand others' frameworks and how they approach the problem and be able to discuss those issues not just at the surface level, but really deep down. What are the assumptions that people bring to the table? What are the value judgments that they're making? And what are the facts that they're working with? You know, kind of working up and getting to every layer of that. And, you know, it's that's, I think, what is missing in our dialogue today that makes us so easily dividable is that we look not at all of that other stuff and all of the worldview that goes behind someone's high level issue. We just see an R or a D next to their name and make a judgment about them. Or we attach a label. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-choice. And that's it. That's the end of discussion. It's just pro-life, pro-choice being yelled back at each other. 
instead of finding a way to understand what that actually means in that person's point of view and have a discussion about what their beliefs actually are because pro-life doesn't describe it for a shorthand I guess it kind of works but that doesn't really just describe my belief system right I'm not just like going around saying life is good that's what I believe and that's all that that's that's really I mean that's not it (laughs) that's not I mean life is good and I think that that is true (laughs) right but it it is just not very easy to drill down all that goes into my beliefs on abortion or my beliefs on tax rates or my beliefs on climate situations and how to address them. You can't do all that with just a moniker like pro-life or, you know, green, (laughs) like going green for the environment or you know, libertarian. I don't think that those little things necessarily encompass what I believe. They're just shorthands that people use to categorize you. And that way they don't have to understand you as an individual. They just understand this is libertarian. This is pro-life or pro-choice or liberal. And I can put you in that box. Okay, good. I'm done. I don't have to think about it anymore. And that's not really how you build a unified society. You build a unified society by saying, I want to understand you. I want to empathize with you and put myself in your shoes. And when I do that, I see, I want to be understood. You probably want to be understood. So I'm going to take the effort and the time to understand you when we have a political discussion. I want to understand where you're coming from, what experience you bring to the table and why it is you believe the things you believe. And I think that that goes a long way for people. So I think that's really what we need to be doing if we want to unify our country and not be able to be swayed by kind of that partisan politics that excites bases against each other and plays to our more base instincts. Instead, I think if we take that rational approach, we'll do a lot better. And so next question is, as a libertarian, where do you think conservatives like Russell Kirk and Roger Scruton go wrong? Do you find yourself becoming more conservative or libertarian as you read them? And this one is from at the classical con, who is someone that I've enjoyed a lot talking to on Twitter. He's very thoughtful. Nathan R. the classical conservative. Um, I think that he is a great person to check out and follow if you want some interesting questions, some good polls. And some really good discussion. But to answer his question, as so I I guess I should back up and say I come from a more conservative background and somewhat small L libertarian. You know, we wanted lower taxes, kind of people getting hands off our money and let us live our lives the way we want to live because we don't want handouts. We just wanted, you know, my dad's whole thing was I want to be left alone to succeed in life or fail in life. And if you let me do that, then I will be okay. And I will do better than if you're inhibiting me 
really by trying to help me. And I think that that is very true, generally speaking, for most people. And so that is kind of where I come from as far as a frame of reference. And so I had libertarian tendencies and I grew up reacting kind of against the Republican Party that claimed to be conservative, but seemed to just ask liberals to slow down their pace (laughs) in a way. And I think that they often turn their back on things that they should want to conserve. And they would follow things like interventionism, abdicating legislative authority, and kind of handing that off to the bureaucracy, as well as fortifying a strong central government. I think that those are all things that we see our founding fathers railing against. And as someone who is proud of the founding and enjoyed that, and I think really agreed with what they saw as a vision of, you know, having liberty and being able to direct your own pursuits, I saw the Republican Party that was supposed to stand for conservatism not doing that. And so that's where I came from as far as that. So I think that I was very disenchanted with conservatism. But as I read conservatives like Scruton, I have not yet read Kirk, so I cannot speak to reading him yet, but I do have a lot of his books on my Christmas list and will hopefully get some of those to start cracking them open. I find myself becoming more conservative. I think that I had, like I said, those strong libertarian leanings and a straw man of conservatism in my head. And as I see people like Scruton and other people articulating points from Kirk and Chesterton and others, I see, and I see the real conservative case that they're making, the the case that the conservatives are making, I think that that holds up a lot stronger. I still have a reaction against the impulse that some conservatives have to use the government power in a number of situations. I think that where minors are concerned and some of those things like with the transgender issues and some of that stuff, yeah, you have to, you can't be letting parents pump minors full of, you know, uh, puberty blockers and other things like that. Like, I think that some of those things, you can't let just pornography be blasted everywhere that minors can find it. You, there are a lot of things like that, that I think that we could push back on that could be pushed back on and would be right to do so because you would be pushing back against people who cannot make that choice for themselves. I still think that the argument, I still think the battle should be fought in encouraging people to be virtuous rather than legislating some of those things. And the reason is maybe one of pragmatism more than authority. And it, and it might just be my libertarian sensibilities saying that it just doesn't feel right to do that. And I, and I guess I might be following that. I don't know, but just like an outright ban on porn, an outright ban on things that are, I know are bad and that I know are bad for our culture and bad for our society and bad for individuals and destroying people's lives. I think porn and drugs and stuff like that are doing that. 
I have a hard time <clears throat> outlawing those things in the way that many people want. I think if you look at it as outlawing or criminalizing something doesn't end up as a black spot on your record, but is a red flag that you are someone that needs assistance, right? So for drug laws, for instance, I think there are still a lot of conservatives who think we should lock people in jail for drug offenses. I think that that's wrong. I think that, first of all, marijuana is not a huge deal and not as bad as alcohol. And if alcohol is going to be legal, you cannot make an argument against marijuana. If you are going to argue for, you cannot argue against the legalization of marijuana and for keeping alcohol legal. You just can't. So I don't think that those arguments hold up. But I do think that other, like hard drugs, you know, putting someone away for possession of meth for five years doesn't help them, doesn't help society, isn't really justice. It's like putting someone who's schizophrenic in jail when they do something violent. They didn't actually have full control over their faculties. I think you need to put people into rehab or get them resources that can help them overcome addiction can help them push back and understand why drugs are bad. You know, that I think is a much better solution to the problem if you're going to have it somewhat criminalized. And I think that's what you need to move towards. And so, and so I got into very specific policy descriptions and kind of lost track of the overall question, which is, have I become more conservative? I would say yes, because I'd say three years ago, I would just say legalized drugs. So the fact that I'm open to some other solutions, I think that the solutions that conservatives put forth need to be tempered by some libertarians in some ways. I, I think that those are some things that a libertarian, a conservative, and strong, like classically liberal, old school liberal people could come together and have some really good solutions I think if you could do that and have those three contingents battling for what's right in our country, we'd be in a really good spot because I do have a conservative tendency as well to hold on to what works. I think I don't have the radical uh, tendencies of some libertarians <laughs> and so that's another thing as well. And I think that a lot of conservatives have this strong radical reaction as well that it's like tear so much down and let's go way back in time. And it's like, that's not a very conservative thing to do either to, <laughs> to just turn back the clock, you know, five hours. And now we have to act like 7am is 2am, right? That doesn't work either. So yes, I have become more conservative. I think that the conservative arguments are stronger than what I would have thought before. The other things that have made me more conservative, I think as well, is the classics. So reading like Plato's Republic, Aristotle's ethics and politics, and some of those things, I think helped make me more conservative as well. And learning more about the Catholic faith and everything there, I think has also made me more conservative in a lot of ways too. So those are, I would actually say that that is the biggest, probably one of the biggest movers is reading Roger Scruton's Meaning of Conservatism 
and seeing that to be conservative in America is not to be conservative in Europe and that you're conserving something and preserving something that is different. And so that is one thing that I think is important is I found that I was trying to, I like the founding fathers and what they had to offer. And so conservatism to me is to say, okay, how do we conserve and preserve that America's founding and, and do that in a way that is in keeping with kind of that British roots, but that melting pot idea of ideas and, <clears throat> and that even the several hundred years or a couple hundred years before we became our own country as colonies, there's things that come from that as well that are a part of our society. And how do we incorporate all of that in the story of our country into something that's worth preserving and preserve it? I think that when you frame it that way, it does really well. Layering on top of that, sort of my growth in Catholicism has made me just less likely to trust <laughs> the solutions and fashions, solutions of the world that come up and the fashions and want to be a part of those as well. I think that that has become less of a want in my life as well. And so those two things and reading more of the classics and seeing how well they hold up <laughs> has made me much more conservative in a number of ways. And so there you go. You're winning the fight uh, over there at the Classical Con. And so with that, thank you for listening to this episode of the Conversation of Our Generation. If you want to check out more, go to conversationforgeneration.com to find all the book reviews, other videos, interviews, all that stuff I'm doing here. Lots of great content coming out, so definitely check that out. And subscribe to the newsletter. There's going to be some more stuff happening there soon. I'm going to be trying to get out some more like monthly notes on there to talk about what's going on and update you. And as new things come up, I plan on taking some time off here around Christmas as well to revamp my office, but also offer some new stuff for you as well, the listener. So definitely keep an eye out there. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you're listening to your podcast that, and leave a good rating and review, comment and like on YouTube on those videos. That stuff helps as well with all the algorithms and getting more people to find it. Share this with a friend if you're enjoying it. And if you do have mailbag questions, let me know. I'll do maybe another episode like this. Maybe I'll start doing like one question because <laughs> I realized how long I went on these. At the end of um, at the end of some episodes, we'll see how that works out. I'd like to do more of that because I'd like to hear what people want to talk about more. So definitely let me know if you have questions that you want me answered. Just tweet at me at Conovargen and do the hashtag mailbag and leave your question and I'll check it out there. And so and then also hashtag it. Let's get the dialogue going or just even get the dialogue going and we'll do and I'll look for that as well so that'll help me find it or you can always DM me on Twitter too so thank you for listening to this episode of the conversation for our generation let's get the dialogue going I'll talk to you next time